Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, some things in the Bible are mysterious, and some things in the Bible aren't as mysterious as we think they are. The Westminster Confession says that although there are deep things in the Bible, complicated things in the Bible, in fact, there is an essential clarity to it as well. Let me read you the words from the Confession. This is the very first chapter of the Confession, section 7, says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. English translation. Yes, the Bible is hard. Some parts of the Bible are hard to understand, and some parts are harder for some people to understand than for others. And yet, despite that, admitting that, there is an essential uh, clarity to the essential teachings. The things we must know and believe and do in order to be saved, those things are clear to us. This is important because otherwise, the, the difficulties would suggest that in order to understand what God has revealed to us, we need someone else to tell us what it says. We need someone else to explain it, someone to come alongside and say, oh no, I realize you read your Bible and it seemed very clearly to say this, but as an expert, let me assure you, it actually means that. Essentially, the confession is is sweeping that kind of mediation aside. saying your mediator is Jesus Christ, and God has revealed himself in a word in a way that, that, although it's not always obvious what is intended, It is essentially clear. That's called, by theologians, perspicuity, clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture. And yet, perspicuity has its limits. If you've ever actually read the Bible, you've come across passages that you just have to scratch your head over. So you get your study Bible out, and you read the notes, and afterwards you're like, yeah, I still have no idea what this means. And you even begin to think maybe the guy who wrote the notes also has no idea what this means. So on the one hand, there is a clarity to Scripture, but on the other, if we're honest, we have to admit, we don't understand it all. There are things that are mysterious. shouldn't be surprising, should it, that an ancient book revealed to us by the, the, the God, the creator of the universe, would sometimes be a little less transparent than at others. Maybe it should sometimes be difficult. Well, in our passage this morning, Peter actually gives us two great examples of this principle. He's going to give us two things to scratch our heads over, and one of those things is really mysterious. And one of them isn't as mysterious as it's going to seem at first. So the two questions Peter's going to raise for us are, first, did Jesus really descend into hell? And secondly, does baptism actually save us? One of these is a puzzle. 
The other one, not so much. Let's take a look at Peter's words. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 18, and this will take us through the end of the chapter. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's what we talked about last week. Peter continues, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So there's our first head scratcher. What's Peter talking about? Jesus went and he he proclaimed to spirits who were in prison something gospelly. Because formerly they hadn't accepted it, they hadn't believed. What's that all about? Then he continues. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected him. So baptism now saves you. That's our second head scratcher. What is he talking about? What does Peter mean when he says this? Now first let's consider the question about Jesus speaking to those spirits in prison. What's that all about? And that should remind you of something. It should remind you of something that, that you've actually confessed here at Grace as part of the faith that you hold. If you remember the Apostles' Creed, there's an interesting little line that we say when we recite the Apostles' Creed. This is the, I'm going to read to you the whole middle section of the Creed. This is the, the, the part dealing with Jesus Christ. See if you can hear what I'm talking about. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Right there in the middle, describing the work of Jesus, the Apostles' Creed says he descended to hell. When we recite that, maybe you've wondered, uh, what is that supposed to mean? And then you come across a passage like Peter's. Oh, there are these imprisoned spirits, and Jesus goes to them, and he, he preaches to them because formerly they had not believed, and, and a light bulb illuminates. Maybe this is what it's all about. Maybe after Jesus died, before he was resurrected, he went down into the underworld, found all of these people who had died without believing in him and preached himself to them. A sort of um, come-to-Jesus rally. Well, a couple of observations about that. The Apostles' Creed includes these words. And the Apostles' Creed, we don't actually know how we got it. The Apostles' Creed is a creed that developed very early. It wasn't written by the Apostles' but it was a compilation of the teaching of the apostles so that as the faith spread and people preached the gospel to other nations, and those nations asked, well, what is the apostolic faith? What did the apostles actually teach? 
They couldn't say, well, you know, why don't you just read your Bible? Because they didn't have a Bible. It was in scrolls of various kinds at that point, hadn't yet been compiled. They needed some way to ensure that the faith being transmitted was indeed the true faith, and so this creedal statement develops. But it's not the result of one person's authorship. No one sat down and wrote it all. There's a tradition that says each of the lines is composed by one of the 12 apostles. That also is false. We just don't know where it originated. And as a result, we don't know what the intention was in inserting these words. He descended to hell. We're not sure exactly the import. And as a result, the thing theologians do when we cannot possibly know something is they theorize. So this is one of those things that's widely theorized about. Now, if you did hear the the Bach Mass in B minor last night, or you hear it this afternoon, the creed is there. Bach actually sets it to music, but what he sets to music is not the Apostles' Creed, but the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was created by the first ecumenical council, Council of Nicaea, put it together. So a bunch of leaders of the church came together. They actually scrutinized it. They left minutes of their meeting. We actually know why it says what it says. And when that happened, this statement does not enter in. But in the Apostles' Creed, we have it. He descended to hell. The argument is sometimes made that the Bible, especially this passage right here, teaches that after his death, Jesus descended to hell and preached to the imprisoned Spirits in Hades, in in a kind of limbo for spirits of the dead. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. But there's a problem with this interpretation. It's actually a couple of problems. Here's the first one. When we think about, let's call it the afterlife, what happens when you die, we don't actually know as much about this as we think we do. Like, if you go and study where the Bible talks about life after death and what that's actually like, what actually happens when you die, where you go, that sort of thing, the Bible doesn't give you uh, as much sort of information as you'd like. It's the reason why when uh, I do the youth group Q&A coming up in May, one of the questions that's been asked is, well, what is heaven like? And I'm free to say whatever I want. Because we just don't have a lot of knowledge about that. We have some, but we don't have a lot. And this is the same. A a lot of our understanding actually comes from a parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, both of them die, and the rich man, when he dies, opens his eyes in Hades. He looks And he sees in the distance, in Abraham's bosom, Lazarus. And the two were divided by some kind of a gulf, some kind of expanse. So the rich man and Abraham have a conversation in which the rich man, if you remember the story, asks if it would be possible, uh, now that he sees that all of the stuff he rejected in life turns out to be true, could we have a messenger go back and explain this to my loved ones so that they know? Would that be a thing we could do? And Abraham says, no, no, it's impossible. It's impossible to cross this gulf. There's something fixed about this place. Now, Jesus is speaking in parables. How much of this we're meant to take literally is is subject to debate. But when he depicts this underworld afterlife, 
he depicts a world divided between those who believe and those who don't. And also asserts an impossibility of moving from one side to the other. Which implies that the decisions made in life are final. When the rich man says, can you send Lazarus as a messenger? Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Speaking a little prophetically there. So, the interpretation that that says, well, maybe what Peter's talking about is Jesus going into the underworld and giving a sort of gospel presentation, it doesn't seem to fit with the way that Jesus himself spoke about these things. There's another problem with this, and you can see it from the context. If you actually read the whole passage, there's something about Noah wrapped up in all this. Peter says he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So whatever Peter's talking about, it seems like chronologically it's tied to the age of Noah. It's something that happened in the days of Noah. A lot of people have tried to to explain this what it was exactly that happened. Uh, Wayne Grudem is one of them, and he posits that there must have been some pre-incarnate work of Christ on the spiritual plane during the days of Noah. And Peter, maybe having knowledge of this from Jesus, makes reference to it. Maybe so. But there is actually a simpler explanation for what's going on here. It's not an explanation that resolves everything, but, but it is at least simpler. Um, it could be that Peter's speaking metaphorically. You may remember during Advent, we looked at a series of servant songs of the prophet Isaiah, and those were predictions. They were prophecies about the Messiah who was to come. And you might remember in Isaiah 42, we read these words. This is 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah uses exactly these words. And one of the things we've seen that New Testament authors frequently do is they go back to Old Testament prophecy to make the connection between the one who was prophesied and Jesus Christ, the one who came. It may be that that's what Peter's doing here. So what should we think about this idea? He descended into hell. Um, We don't know exactly the intention. Far be it from us to go back and, and edit the creed. Not a great idea. But different people have interpreted it differently. Martin Luther said, I believe it, but I don't understand it. Calvin said, this is actually symbolic, the descent into hell. It has to do with with the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, which sounds very good, but has a chronological difficulty, if you think about it, because this is listed after the crucifixion, not before I think the Heidelberg Catechism has a pretty good way of thinking about this. It doesn't resolve 
the question at all, but it gives us a way to think about what to do with this idea. The question, this is question 44, it says, um, why is there added to the creed, he descended into hell? Here's the answer. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. That doesn't resolve all of the problems with the passage. We can't resolve them absolutely. This is one of those instances. There are others in Scripture. We're not quite sure what Peter has in mind. But all of this, I think, helps us to get a glimpse of what he must mean in this passage. So I'm going to say this is an example of a real mystery in Scripture. The kind of thing sometimes you think you would never encounter, and yet you do. And when we encounter such mysteries, I'm going to argue it's actually better to let them be mysteries than to invent theories to reconcile all of the gaps. Right? God knows how to fill the gaps. We don't always have to. So did Jesus really descend into hell? It seems to me not in any literal sense. But there was a prophetic sense in which he did. But does baptism actually save you? That's the second head scratcher. Does baptism actually save you? And Peter seems to think that it does. Peter says baptism now saves you. Which is a problem because typically when when we baptize people, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but we typically say we don't believe that the act of baptism actually saves you. And that seems to put us in conflict with the Apostle Peter, who says, oh, contraire, it does. Baptism now saves you. Baptism, which corresponds to this, he says, now saves you. What do we do with that? What does he mean by that? Do we need to rewrite our whole understanding of baptism because it was somehow formulated without any knowledge of, of Peter's writings? And now that we actually look at the Bible, it turns out we were wrong all this time. Let's, let's dig into this. So a lot of people, when they look at this passage, the doctrine that emerges out of it is called baptismal regeneration. Maybe you've heard the term before. It's the idea uh, that some churches have that the act of baptism, that the performance of the act of baptism actually brings about the regeneration of the person who is being baptized. So some people, when they baptize infants, believe that the act of placing the water in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an actual regenerative change takes place in the heart of the infant. They're regenerate. So that literally, when Peter says, baptism now saves you, he means it. It now saves you. That child was unsaved. But now, as a result of his baptism, he's become saved because baptism now saves you. There is a little bit of a problem with this, though, with this interpretation. So you'll notice Peter doesn't say baptism now saves you. There's a little parenthetical there. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And the question is, what is the this? What is it that baptism corresponds to? And in this passage, what baptism corresponds to is Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. 
just as Noah's ark saved Noah and his family, those eight persons who were brought safely through the water, baptism safely brings us through the water. Baptism now saves us as the ark saved them. So you see what the difficulty is, if, if, if I believe that the act of, of pouring the water brings about the salvation of the one to whom I do it, that I don't actually believe enough about that. Because people who believe that baptism brings about regeneration do not believe that everyone who receives the sign of baptism will indeed be saved. Because that regeneration, it's possible for it to begin but not be completed. It's possible for you to lose it, to renounce it, to not live up to it, that sort of thing. So where the ark saved everyone on the ark, you know, Peter doesn't say, you know, they were saved by the ark except for the ones who fell off and drowned. That's a shame, but a lot of them didn't, and, and they were saved. No, he's talking about an instrument of real salvation. Everyone who was on the ark was delivered. And everyone who is baptized is saved. Doesn't go far enough, in other words. So what does this mean? Everyone who is baptized is saved. I mean, how do you interpret such words? So, to understand what Peter means, we have to think about what the ark is analogous to and what baptism is analogous to. You see what I'm saying? When he talks about the ark, what is he really talking about? He's talking about God's work of salvation. Right? The ark was the means by which God brought about the salvation of Noah and his family. It was the means that he used. And Peter's here speaking of baptism in the same way. Baptism as a means by which God brings about salvation. Jesus interestingly makes a similar kind of statement, linking salvation and the ark to the days of Noah. Jesus, before his crucifixion, talked in the same way. This is in Matthew 24. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus has already created this sort of parallel of understanding in which the ark stands for salvation in those days. And as Peter says, baptism stands for salvation in these the mystery of this is resolved a little bit by thinking about the way that Peter's using the language here. Um, he's doing something, he's using language that, that later the Westminster divines would, would call the language of sacramental union. Here's the explanation. This is in, in the Westminster Confession, chapter 27. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, where it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So there is a union in every sacrament, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, a union between the sign and the thing that it signifies. Right? The sign is the sign of the water applied, the sign of, of the, the bread and the wine consumed. And the thing they signify is union with Christ, salvation, inheritance of all of those covenant promises. That's what they signify. And because 
There is a union between these things. Scripture speaks of them sometimes, attributing the attributes of the one to the other. This is my body. This is my blood. Baptism now saves you. Now, we might be listening with sort of 21st century evangelical ears and think, well, this is a dangerous way of speaking. This could create a lot of confusion. It it could even sound a little Catholic. But this is how Scripture speaks. I don't know about you, but I want to talk the way the Bible talks. Because I think when we conform our, our thoughts and our understanding to the way the authors of Scripture do, we understand more deeply the things that are revealed to us. And so, there's a sense in which Peter looks at baptism and says, baptism saves you. Does Peter believe it doesn't matter if you have faith? Of course not. But he sees in the sign wrapped up with it that all that it signifies, the whole work of salvation summarized under that sign, and so he can speak about it in that way. In that sense, baptism does actually save us. Not the sign, but what it signifies. And in that sense, we do partake of Christ's body and blood, but not without receiving in faith. This is the mystery that's not so mysterious if you think about it. If you compare the way Peter speaks elsewhere, you can create an understanding of how he sees salvation, and you recognize that reading this passage literally would be to misread it. In its context, it's clear that Peter is speaking in this analogous way. Mysteries are fascinating. Mysteries engage the imagination, and mysteries can also be a little distracting. Sometimes we're so obsessed with the mysteries that we fail to see what is plainly before our eyes. We're so wrapped up in in finding solutions and creating theories that the thing that is right there in front of us is overlooked. We miss the point. And I, I fear that in a passage like this, that's an easy thing to do. Because you read these words of Peter and they, they raise up so many interesting mysteries and possibilities that need to be explored. And, and they do need to be explored. But we run the risk of, of missing the point of what he's actually talking about. What Peter's really trying to talk about in this passage is not whether or not Jesus descended into hell, whether or not baptism really saves you. He's talking about Jesus and the work of Jesus and why we should be assured by that work. He wants us to understand that Christ's work may be finished, but Jesus isn't finished working. Jesus is still at work with us. There are two bookends of this passage, the the very beginning of the passage and the very end. And you might think of these as as brackets of humiliation and exaltation. At the beginning, we're considering the suffering of Christ, which ought to encourage us in our suffering. And at the end, we're reveling in the exaltation of Christ, which ought to encourage us in our hope for the future. Jesus, his humiliation begins with his incarnation, the taking on of flesh. But even though we speak of the incarnation as the beginning of his humiliation, the incarnation doesn't end when the humiliation does. Jesus doesn't stop becoming fully God and fully man. He is incarnate for perpetuity. He is always fully God and fully man, then and now. 
In other words, the incarnation was not a temporary measure. It's a permanent state of affairs. In Jesus, God and man are one forever after, which means that Jesus in his person is a living picture of the plan of salvation. Because the plan of salvation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is for God in Christ to reconcile us to himself. Essentially, the, the rupture between the creator and the creature is being brought together. And we see it brought together literally in the person of Jesus Christ. God and man reconciled. And Jesus continues the work of mediation between God and man. Although he finished the work of atonement on the cross, he's still working on our behalf. If you think about it, like who he is is what he does. Jesus is the God-man, fully divine, fully human, but he is also the one who brings about that God-human unity. Jesus, exalted, seated at the Father's right hand with angels, authorities, powers, subject to him, Jesus has become our priest-king. And Jesus is your advocate at the Father's right hand. The most important question in this passage doesn't have to do with, with descending into hell. It doesn't have to do with whether or not baptism actually saves you. The most important question that this passage addresses is where's Jesus? Where is Jesus? Which isn't a theological question at all. It's a question of the heart. It's the question we ask when we suffer, when things do not go our way, when, when our plans collapse on top of us. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Wasn't he supposed to prevent this? Wasn't he supposed to be looking out for us? Where is Jesus? Because even if we know better, when you experience hardship and suffering, you interpret it as his absence. This wouldn't be happening if Jesus had been here. Where is Jesus? He must be off the clock. There are three ways we we tend to answer this question, where is Jesus, and and they're all good as far as they go, but maybe they don't go far enough. Sometimes we we say, well, Jesus is everywhere, right? Jesus is God. God is omnipresent, so Jesus is everywhere. And if you're really asking in your heart, where is Jesus, and someone says, Jesus is everywhere, it sounds like you're saying, well, Jesus is basically nowhere. If Jesus is here, but he's not making a difference, then what is the point of his presence? Maybe better, Jesus is in heaven. After the ascension, Jesus is in heaven, and we will one day be in heaven with him, which is true as far as it goes. But what it sounds like is Jesus is very far away right now. I know things are going bad for you, but Jesus is in heaven. And one day, you'll be fine, and for now, you just need to get through it. Or we can say very piously, Jesus is in my heart. Jesus is in my heart which is true as far as it goes, but it kind of tends to make Jesus into like a good feeling. Right? Like I can feel him there on good days, but I wouldn't be asking where is Jesus if I felt him in my heart. Right? I wouldn't feel his absence. So where is Jesus? I always like to ask my, my students at Worldview Academy this question, where is Jesus right now? And And... It stumps people until somebody remembers, wait a second, 
I do remember something from the creed about this. I remember that Jesus has like a, a fixed location, like some GPS coordinates are given to us. We're told Jesus is sitting somewhere. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't know exactly where that's located, but I know that if you find God next to him at his right hand, you'll find Jesus. God incarnate sitting at his right hand, exalted with all authority subject to him. That's where Jesus is. He's come into his kingdom. His exaltation means that all power has been placed in his hands. There's no advocate more influential than Jesus. You might think of it this way. Seated there at the right hand of the Father, Jesus can whisper into his ear. Jesus is always present there in the council of God on high, which means that in the inner council of God, there's always a voice speaking up for you. You have a person who cares for you, who represents you, who is in union with you, who considers you a fellow heir, a brother or sister, and he's seated at the right hand of God Almighty where he intercedes for you. That is the comfort that Peter offers here. And comfort is what he's trying to give. You're going to suffer. Things are going to go badly for you. You're going to do good, and you're not going to be rewarded for it. You're going to be punished for it even. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. That's going to happen. And when that happens, remember that Jesus suffered in the same way. That Jesus too suffered. But remember more than that. That after his suffering, he was exalted. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father where he makes intercession for you. He's your advocate now. He is your go-between. Just as the ark brought Noah and his family safe through the water, your baptism, the work of salvation that it signifies, will bring you safe through the water as well. You are never forgotten. Because Jesus sits At the right hand of the Father, you are never neglected. You never go unconsidered. Where is Jesus? Jesus is where you need Him to be. At the right hand of the Father, making intercession on your behalf. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.